Just a quick reminder, you guys know we've been reading the Bible together for a year now. We're reading through the Bible, right? Starting in January, a little bit of the Old Testament each day, a little bit of the New Testament. But you know, now we're like seven months into it. And I know how it is. As Christians, generally we're pretty cheesy. That's why we needed to be saved, you know what I mean? So we're not always the best at finishing. Sometimes you get through and you're excited at the beginning of the year and then you start to peter out a little bit. But right now is an awesome time in the one-year Bible reading with uh, Psalms, you know what I mean? Goodness gracious to read the Psalms each day. And then we're going to be getting into Romans pretty soon. So to start your day with Psalms and Romans, that's as juicy as it gets, people. So listen, if for some reason you kind of cheese out on the one-year Bible reading, just pick it back up. Pick it back up where he left off. If you don't have one of the flyers telling you where we are, they're by the door. Go to their website. We've posted it there. But this is a really exciting time to be in the one-year Bible with Psalms and uh, Romans coming up. Also, Thursday nights. If you haven't been to Thursday nights, what are you doing? Right? Exactly. Thursday nights have been the most incredible thing our church has ever done, in, in my opinion. Uh, we're just having a Thursday night service. It starts off at 6 o'clock with a meal, family meal, and different home groups making food. And then we come in and have a little Bible study about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And then we have a time of just waiting on the Holy Spirit and allowing the gifts to function and to flow. And it has been the most incredible time. We have had just beautiful prophetic words delivered to our body. Uh, we've had individuals getting prophetic words. We've had words of knowledge. This last Thursday night, I just uh, prompted by the Spirit, just walked out in the crowd and said, who's got a testimony of what the Lord has done? And several people testified that God has healed them physically in the last few weeks on Thursday nights. And so, uh, yeah, there should be bigger applause than that for God healing people. So, I mean, it's the real stuff. People are getting healed. People are getting set free. Husbands' hearts are getting soft, and God is answering radical prayer. Uh, there's just a few Thursday nights left. So if you haven't been there, I really encourage you to get there. Are you in Joshua 11? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and that we get to now study it together. And we ask the Holy Spirit you'd give us understanding. Jesus said about you that you are the teacher of all things. And so I would submit my thoughts and my words and my heart to you, Holy Spirit. And we would ask together, because we want to hear from God, that you would author my thoughts, that you would anoint my words, Lord, that everything that comes from this mouth would be directly from the throne of God. Jesus, you alone have the words of life. We haven't come to hear a man. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want the wisdom of God and the word of God. So word of God, speak. We affirm together that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to deal with the depth of who we are. And we affirm together that it is inerrant and infallible, really is God's word. And God, we trust you to do great things now through the teaching of your word. Please save us from doing church. Save us from churchianity. We want to be real Christians. We want to be more like Jesus. Lord, truthfully, we sin more than we want to. We want to be more like you. And so come, Holy Spirit, work through the Holy Word to transform our lives. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, last week, we covered most of Joshua chapter 11. A couple details that I want to deal with today. But first, just a quick recap from last week. The main point that we gleaned in our study of Joshua 11 last week was this, that obedience brings rest. Okay, spiritually speaking, as Christians, the more we obey Jesus and the word of God, the more restful and peaceful our life is. Amen? 
It doesn't mean that it's any more free from turmoil or trials or persecution. In fact, being a Christian might bring you more of those things. But it means that in spite of them and through them and throughout them, we have peace that surpasses comprehension. We have joy that is indescribable. And the way that we lay hold of that most effectively is simply by obeying the Lord. Because obedience puts us in the place of blessing. Disobedience removes us from the place of blessing and where God wants to work in our lives. But when we obey, it's called abiding in Christ. And when we obey, we're in the place of blessing and we're in the place where, where God is working. And no matter what's going on around us, and gnarly stuff goes on around us, people die, people get hurt, stuff happens, tragic losses all the time. Tragedy. That's the world that we live in. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And when we abide in Jesus Christ by obeying him, we find that as the world crumbles around us, we have peace in the midst of it. When stuff is coming apart at the seams, we still have joy because of who Jesus is. When we walk away from the Lord, we start to pin our, our hopes and our expectations on worldly things. And that always breeds disappointment. You're bound to be disappointed. And then we walk in defeat, but the purpose of the Christian life is to experience the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And we are to walk in victory, and we're to take the land, so to speak, as Joshua and the Israelites took the land of Canaan. We are to take the spiritual land that is ours in the Lord. Now, we saw about Joshua, we've observed in him in our study of the book so far, that Joshua obeyed immediately and consistently. He obeyed immediately and consistently. That was a tone in the tenor of his life. And last week we mentioned the fact that as Christians, we usually know the right thing to do. We just don't always want to do it. And so we drag our feet or we just refuse and it makes a mess of life. Sin is messy, period. You know what I mean? Anybody ever made a mess of their life because of sin? Sin is messy. Big sin, little sin, it's all messy. And when we drag our feet, when the Lord is telling us what to do, that makes a mess in our life. But Joshua obeyed the Lord immediately and consistently. And I would also say that he obeyed the Lord carefully. He really wanted to do everything that the Lord called him to do. He wasn't sloppy in his obedience. He wasn't haphazard. He was careful. He obeyed God in the big things and in the minutiae. And so we read in Joshua eleven fifteen, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua's obedience was immediate, consistent, and meticulous. I like that. Immediate, consistent, and meticulous in that yielded a victorious walk with God. Even in the face of a powerful onslaught from the enemy. Does anybody know that Satan is our enemy? Yeah. Does anybody know that he comes against the Christian with everything in his arsenal? Just like the northern conglomeration of nations in Joshua chapter 11 came against the Israelites, and, and they had some resources that the Israelites had, number one, never been up against, and number two, they had never possessed themselves. That is, horses and chariots. And it's this great army from the north, a multitude of armies come together, and horses and chariots, and you could see their confidence as they came against Israel. What, no horses? No chariots? You guys are going to be easy. And all that Israel had was the Lord. And we talked about the fact that in Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, some boast in chariots, 
And some boast in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. He is a rock and an everlasting rock and a strong tower and a refuge to those who trust in him. And so when we're engaged in the spiritual battle of our lives, conventional weapons will not do. There's no room for boasting in horses and in chariots in the spiritual battle of life. Because no matter how many material resources you have or the wherewithal or the ingenuity or the earthly relationships, they will not do in the heat of the spiritual battle. Our boast needs to be in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He is the one who has defeated the enemy. And through him, we are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers through him. Listen to me. We already have the victory in Jesus Christ. We just need to lay hold of it. It's not that as Christians we're fighting for victory. Rather, it's we're fighting from victory. We are fighting from a place's victory, of victory. Did not Jesus say on the cross, die? it is finished? He accomplished it. We are already seated in the heavenlies with him. So the goal of the Christian life then is to practically experience that positional truth. The positional truth being that we are already conquerors through Christ Jesus seated in the heavenlies. And so practically then, we want to experience that victory in our lives. And we lay hold of that by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But see, so often we walk according to the material and according what to begin, what can be seen and what is tangible instead of faith in the Lord, trusting in the Lord in the difficult times. And he proves himself absolutely faithful. And what we find when we abide in Christ, and the greatest expression of trusting him is obeying him. Oftentimes people say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a difficult time, but I'm trusting the Lord. And one might say, okay, are you obeying the Lord? Because if you don't obey the Lord, you don't trust the Lord. I mean, really. Because he says, here's wisdom for your life. Here's how to live. Here's what will bring health and peace and well-being and joy to your life. And if we trust him, then we pursue after those things by obeying him. If we don't trust him, then we take situations into our own hands. And I find that when I disobey the Lord, my life becomes burdensome. Can I get a witness? When I disobey the Lord, I get weighed down with a weight of sin. I get all caught up in the flesh and the world and the things of the enemy, and it's just so burdensome. But, but when I obey Jesus Christ, there comes freedom and light and joy and peace that is incomprehensible to my life. The more I obey the Lord, the freer I am. And the world says, oh, you're a Christian. In the Bible, it's a bunch of rules, and you've got to obey Jesus, and it hems you in, and it cuts you off, and it's a bummer, and it's drudgery, and it's this religious trip. No, it ain't, man. It's freedom and life and joy. When I obey Jesus Christ, I am free. When I obey the flesh, I go into bondage. And Jesus Christ has set me free from sin, so I don't want to do it anymore. Amen? And we walk in victory when we walk in obedience to the Lord. But the Christian life is one that requires perseverance. The Bible is full of men and women who started well and finished poorly. And so our world today is full of Christians who started very well. Some zeal, some excitement, some passion, some accountability, some connection with the Lord. Started very well, but somewhere in the walk petered off. The Christian life requires perseverance because it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And what we see in Joshua is that his obedience was not only immediate. It was not only 
consistent. It was not only thorough, but he persevered in obedience. He kept doing the right thing even when it was most difficult. Now, it says in the New Testament, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you shall receive if you continue to sow. In due time you shall reap. But oftentimes we grow weary. And I hear people say all the time, well, I already tried it God's way and I've been doing that and it didn't work. We need to persevere in doing the right thing. My brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we are in a long distance run with the Lord. Persevere in doing the right thing and watch the Lord bless your life. Again, it's not because Christianity is performance oriented. The cross sets us free from performance. It's not that when you disobey, God loves you less, and when you obey, he loves you more. That's a theological impossibility. The Bible declares he already loves you perfectly. Rather, it is because obedience puts us in the place of blessing where God can work in your life, and disobedience removes you practically from that place. So when we obey, we experience the blessings of the Lord in his life. And I love that Joshua was diligent to go after those giants. We mentioned it last week, but I think I'll mention it again. Then in verse 21, he went after the giants. 46 years earlier, those giants had terrified 10 of the spies at Kadesh Barnea who went in to spy out the land. And because of those giants, they didn't receive all that God had for them. And that's a disappointment. Because he never dealt with those giants. He never received all that the Lord had for them. And that's indicative of many Christians' lives. They settle at some point. They say, well, I know the Lord kind of wants to lead me into that area, but there's giants there. You know, there's a big situation there, or there's a big sin situation that's got me cut off, or whatever it is. And and so we shrink back from those things, and we never then experience everything God has for us. But as a Christian, I want the fullness, amen? I want the fullness in everything thereof. I want everything God has for me, nothing more, but nothing less. But too often we shrink back from those giants of life instead of getting the victory over them with the Lord, and then we just miss out. That generation that was intimidated by the giants, they never entered into Canaan. They never experienced the blessings and the fruit and the fullness. And so that's what we've been learning in Joshua so far. And we're going to see a radical change now in the tone and the tenor of the book. It's going to go from war and victory to some some different aspects, and we'll study it in the weeks to come. But there's one verse that we did not deal with last week in Joshua 11. Now, this verse is a difficult verse. When you look up, uh, if you have a book that's like Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties or difficult passages in the Bible or something like that, this is included in all of them, or at least the concept is. This is one that causes trouble for a lot of people. They're reading through the Bible, and they come to a verse like this, and they go, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why would God do that? And they begin to think, you know, either there's something wrong with the Bible or there's something wrong with God. And this is one of those verses. I want to read it, and then I want to explain it to you. Joshua chapter 11, verse 20. Speaking of the enemies of Israel, the Canaanites and the Amorites in the land, it says in verse 20 of Joshua 11, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now look what the scripture says. The scripture says explicitly there, and we will not try to twist it or change it. It says that the Lord hardened the hearts of the enemies of Israel to make sure that they came into battle against Israel. 
knowing that the end result of their battles with Israel would be that they would receive no mercy and would be utterly destroyed. The Bible says God hardened their hearts. Literally, it means to make firm. God made firm in their hearts their resolve to battle against Israel, knowing that in that they would no longer receive mercy and they would be utterly destroyed. Now, that causes turmoil in the mind of the reader and the student of the Bible for obvious reasons. But let's try to understand what the scriptures have to say here. The first theological concept that we need to lay hold of to begin to understand what this passage is teaching is this. Number one, that the God of the Bible is a righteous God. Amen? When I say that, it ought to be louder. The God of the Bible is a righteous God. There's no flaw in him. There's no error in him. He's not like you and I. Don't make God in your own image. He's not messed up like we are. He is righteous, he is without error in all that he says and does in all of his wisdom. Now, in his righteousness is the fact that he is a just judge. We like that. Sometimes you rally against it in your rebellion against God. But overall, speaking as humanity, we like that. Don't we in society want just judges? Unless you yourself are crooked and perverse and it will gain you some way, you like a just judge. You want justice to be met. Now, humanity takes a degree of comfort in the fact that we all collectively, somewhere deep inside of us, believe that there is a righteous God who is a just judge who will judge people someday. If it weren't for that truth hidden in us, we could barely survive because of the atrocities that are committed in our world every day, because of the genocide that is committed, because of the crimes against children that are committed, because of the abortions that are committed, because of whatever it is, the horrific things that happen in our world. We could barely survive if humanity did not collectively know somewhere deep inside them that there's a God who is just and righteous, who's going to judge, who's going to make certain people pay for certain things, and who's going to set every wrong right one day. Now, the God of the Bible is that just judge. He is absolutely just. He is absolutely righteous. And because he is, he must punish sin. All sin. There is not the smallest sin that will not be dealt with by God. Every sin must be dealt with or he ceases to be just and righteous. So the God of the Bible is righteous, he's a just judge, and to maintain his righteousness, he must deal with sin. Now the second theological concept that we've got to lay hold of, trying to understand verse 20 of Joshua 11, is this. He is not only righteous and just, he is merciful. Amen? Amen. Our God is a merciful God. He described himself to Moses as compassionate and long-suffering. He is a merciful God. At the same time, he's righteous and a just judge and merciful at the same time. And here's great news about our God. He prefers mercy over judgment. He would rather extend mercy to people than judge people. And when I say judge, I don't mean like you and I say, don't judge me. I don't mean like that silly, cheesy thing. I mean judge in a legal sense. He would rather extend mercy to people than judge people. He must judge sin because of his righteous character. But he would rather extend mercy because of his kind heart. 
Third theological concept that we need is this. God will only extend mercy for so long. God's mercy throughout different periods of history with different people always has an expiration date. God will only extend mercy for so long when the object of his mercy continues to dismiss it. He will only extend it for so long. And let me say this. When mercy is refused, the only option left is judgment. God wants to extend mercy, reject his mercy, then you will receive judgment. Now, the fact that his mercy has limits is exemplified in the story of Noah. Remember, the earth was exceedingly wicked, and the world said, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over. But he told Noah, he said this to Noah, my spirit will not strive with man forever. I'm not going to battle with man and his wickedness forever. He said, his years shall be 120, the Lord said in Genesis 6.3. In other words, the Lord was given humanity 120 more years to repent before judgment came. He told Noah, there's going to be a flood. I need you to build a boat. We know from the book of 2 Peter that while Noah was building, he was preaching, that he was a preacher of righteousness, that he was explaining to the people, we have erred against a holy God, and there is a consequence for that. He's righteous, he's a just judge, and he is going to judge the earth. You must repent. And anybody that would have repented during that 120-year period would have been saved from the judgment of God. Tragically, we're told that nobody repented and went into the ark other than Noah and his family members and the animals. But God gave a time period for which man could repent. God is so good. Before he brings judgment, he always sends a messenger. Before he brings judgment, he always sends a herald or a prophet who could announce the judgment of God is coming. That's the whole gig with Jonah and Nineveh. He was going to judge Nineveh. Jonah just rolls up and goes, God's going to judge you guys. And they immediately begin to repent. Now he did the same thing there in that 120 years. He sent Noah, the messenger. He gave 120 years. At the end of the 120 years, judgment came. Mercy was extended for a long time. But mercy has an end. Same thing in the corporate life of Israel. When Israel would over and over again rebel against the Lord, the Lord would always send a prophet to say, hey guys, you've gone the wrong direction here. You have forsook the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God with all your heart and he will heal your land. Return to the Lord your God. If you don't, God is going to bring another nation to conquer you, to vanquish you, to drag you away from the land, another nation that will be an instrument of his judgment. And when Israel repented before the Lord, they were cool. When they refused to, judgment eventually came. Sometimes the Lord warned them hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. But ultimately, the mercy that God was extending as his message of repentance was, was proclaimed came to an expiration, and judgment came. Now, it's the same thing with the period of history in which we are living. It's the exact same thing. We are living in the shadow of the cross, after the cross. And it is the age of grace. God is extending grace and mercy to humanity. But that will come to an expiration. Romans says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not understanding that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. 
Listen to what the word of God says there. The word of God warns those who take lightly or disregard the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God. You see, judgment is coming, but it is not yet. What is now is mercy and grace. And God is drawing humanity to repentance by his kindness. He's being kind to people in hopes that they will come to him in repentance. But when they reject that, they are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of judgment. Now, humanity does not often realize this. They think that they're getting away with something. Hey, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm not obeying the Bible. I'm not following after God. I'm not on his gig and I'm getting away with it. I'm stoked and I'm happy and I got all the stuff that I need. And they assume that either God doesn't care or God is dead. When the truth according to the word of God is he is extending mercy, seeking to draw them by his kindness and he is delaying judgment. But if they reject his mercy, then there's nothing left but judgment. And the Bible says it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment comes. And so the warning of humanity is to not take lightly the kindness and the patience of God. Now, in all of these instances, the 120 years with Noah, hundreds of years with Israel, 2,000 years since the cross for you and I, God is demonstrating his intense desire for people to receive his mercy. He's demonstrating his intense desire for people to be forgiven. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 30, 18, that the Lord waits on high to have compassion on you? He's waiting to be kind to you. And these long periods of time are an expression, a revelation of God's heart. They paint a picture for you and I of his incredible desire to give people mercy instead of judgment. And yes, we know, because he is righteous, that he must judge. Now, judgment happens at one of two times, basically, the, the, the fullness of judgment. When somebody dies, it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment comes, or at the second coming of the Lord. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he came as a sacrifice for our sins. And he came as a humble servant. When he comes a second time, he will come as a ruler of the earth and the judge of the quick and the dead. He came the first time to save humanity. When he comes the second time, he is coming to judge humanity. We all rejoice in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. And we ought to rejoice in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He didn't come the first time to judge, he came to save, because God prefers mercy over judgment. And so instead of judging first, he extends mercy first. But when somebody rejects his mercy, then judgment is inevitable. And Jesus Christ came the first time to manifest the mercy of God. He's coming again to manifest the righteousness and the judgment of God. And he is at this time leaving room for repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's talking about the coming of the Lord. It says that in the last day, there will come mockers, people who say, the second coming of the Lord. Are you kidding me? 
the second coming of the Lord. Where is he? For decades now, Christians have been saying, the Lord is coming. Yeah, right. Where is he? Nothing has changed since my grandfather died. What are you talking about? It says there in 2 Peter, verse 3, that there will come mockers, chapter 3, verse 3, mockers in the last day. But then it says, this one thing escapes their notice, that a thousand years is like a day with the Lord and a day like a thousand years. And the Lord is not slow about his coming, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but he wants everybody to have room to repent. Now the Canaanites in the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua, who had their hearts hardened by God, by the time Joshua comes into the land and conquers the land, they have had a minimum of 400 years to repent. God only left the generation before Noah 120 years. Israel sometimes had a much shorter period. We think the Lord have had 2,000 years since the cross, but your life is not that long, is it? But the Canaanites have at least 400 years by this time to repent. Because you remember from Genesis chapter 12 that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, Israel, the land of Canaan. But he would not bring them into that land until 400 years later. During that 400 years, that was the Canaanites' time to repent. That was their room, their opportunity for repentance. It says in Genesis 15, 16, the Lord speaking to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your people shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In this context, a generation is 100 years. Remember, Israel went into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then they would come into the land. The iniquity of the Amorite, the inhabitants of the land, was not yet complete. God was giving them 400 years to repent of their idolatry and immorality. Now, don't you think that's a long time? The Lord is so merciful. Gleason Archer says about this passage, the implication of this statement was that when the wickedness of the inhabitants of Canaan had reached a predetermined accumulation of guilt, then God would have them removed from the land of promise. He gave them 400 years to either continue in their wickedness or to repent. They didn't repent. They continued in their wickedness. What, what kind of wickedness was it? I mean, was it really that bad that God commanded Joshua to wipe them all out? Well, the religious system that they adopted when they rejected God was based on sexual immorality and immoral acts that we won't think about or mention in this place were committed in the name of their false gods. And they sacrificed their children to idols. They maimed, tortured, tormented, burned their children. When people reject the one true God, they fall into idolatry of one form or another. The New Testament tells us clearly, as does the Old, that idols are demonic personalities impersonating gods. They're demonic personalities. Now listen to me. Demons hate humanity. They hate God more, but being that they can't get to God, they'll get to what God loves most, his creation. And so the goal of these demons is to mar the image of God. And so what will he do? He'll seek to mar and to perverse those who were created in the image of God. And so in following after these demonic personalities, these false idols, these false idols got them to the, this, this intense level of sexual immorality and to the place of sacrificing their children. And God in his 
indescribable, infathomable, almost unacceptable mercy gave them another 400 years to repent. And they still would not repent. And so the expiration date came. And God hardened their hearts, literally in the Hebrew, made firm or confirmed that which was already in their hearts to rebel against God and his people, that he might then use Israel as an instrument of judgment against them and utterly destroy those who were so wicked and who rejected God. He wanted them to receive mercy. And there's evidence that he would have extended mercy to every single one of them had they asked for it. Remember Rahab? Rahab was just a prostitute, you know what I mean? She was a prostitute there in Joshua chapter 2. But she recognized the one true God of Israel. She said, I see, she said to the spies from Israel, that, that your God is the one true God and he's given you the land. And that declaration of faith was all that was needed for her to receive the mercy of God. And so she was not wiped out with the other inhabitants of Jericho. She was brought into the religious life of Israel. You see, God was wanting to extend mercy so much so that when one prostitute said, your God is a real God, he goes, yes. And she didn't perish. It's evidenced by the fact of the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 who also appealed for mercy, and God brought them into the religious life of Israel. God would have extended mercy to every single inhabitant of the land of Canaan had they been but willing. By the very nature of God, we know that if, we gave, that if God gave them 400 years, God was working very hard to draw them to himself. The heart of God for mercy is revealed in Genesis chapter 18, where we have Abraham, praying to the Lord. God told Abraham, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah for their immorality. And Abraham, moved by compassion, began to pray and said, God, what if there's 50 people in the city that are righteous? 50 who are yours? Will you spare the hundreds and thousands of others? God said, I will. Abraham said, God, what if there's only 45? Will you then spare them? God said, I will. Abraham goes, okay, God, be merciful to me. But let's say there's only 40. Will you spare a multitude on behalf of the 40 then who want to follow after you? I will. And then Abraham said, what if there's only 30? God said, I will extend mercy if there's only 30 who stand on behalf of all the unrighteous, just 30 righteous. And then Abraham said, okay, God, 20? Do I hear 20? Will you extend mercy if there's just 20? And then Abraham finally says, God, will you show mercy? to an entire population if there's just 10 who will seek your face. And God says, I will show mercy to an entire population for the benefit of just 10. Now let me tell you what was happening there. Through his praying, through his dialoguing with God, Abraham was discovering the heart of God. And when Abraham dove into the heart of God, Abraham discovered that God was more merciful than he ever, ever could have fathomed. That God would spare a wicked and perverse multitude for just 10 who said, God, have mercy on us. It's not that he was dictating to God what God ought to do. It's not that God was wrong and Abraham corrected him. It's that in his prayers and in his requesting of God, he discovered the heart of God, and the heart of God was more big and merciful than he ever could have imagined. 
Would not God have been justified in wiping out all of Israel when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and they fell into sexual immorality and idolatry around the golden calf and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt and rejected the God of Israel? Would not God have been justified in bringing his wrath? And God told Moses, Mo, you better get down the mountain because I'm wiping your people out. And one man, Moses, simply said, God, will you have mercy? And God extended mercy to a whole nation because one man discovered the heart of God when he began to ask. You have not because you ask not. God would be so merciful to our community and to our nation if somebody would just be like Abraham and dive into the heart of God and say, God, would you have mercy on us? Because he prefers mercy over judgment. He wants to extend mercy. And I'll tell you what, where the Canaanites were thousands of years ago is where America is now. We sacrifice our babies to the God of self. Millions upon millions upon millions of them, it's called abortion. We sacrifice our children in the midst of our idolatry. And our sexual morality is no more or no less grotesque than was theirs. And we are in the same situation that God is extending his mercy to a whole nation. And it was brought to my attention that Jamestown, the first colony in America, was established in 1607, exactly 400 years ago. And God gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. How much longer will he extend mercy to America? But if God's people would call upon their God, turn from their wicked ways, God will heal our land because he loves to extend mercy. But when mercy is rejected, judgment is all that is left. And so the Canaanites rejected God. And so God confirmed or literally made firm that which was already in their hearts, rebellion to come against the Israelites. The Israelites might be the instrument of judgment against them that they might be utterly destroyed. Now, how do you think God felt when the Canaanites and the Amorites were being destroyed? I mean, think about God's heart. How do you think God felt? Well, we're told how he feels in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, why then will you die? God doesn't rejoice when people perish in their sins. His heart breaks over that. That's why he gave his only begotten son, the very manifestation of mercy. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he gave Jesus to die for us. That's not some ethereal, far-off theological concept. That's as real as the ground underneath you that God gave his only begotten son. I'm a father. I have a son. I want to give one inch of my son's life for your well-being. I want it. I love my son too much. But aren't you glad that I'm not God? God gave his son. The chastisement for our sins fell upon him. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush Jesus Christ that we might receive mercy. 
God is desperate to extend mercy to humanity. If humanity rejects God's mercy, there is nothing left but judgment. And the first manifestation of God's judgment is that he lets people do what they want to do. When it says he hardened their hearts, made firm, that was a punitive measure on God's part. That was the first manifestation of God's judgment is, okay, I'm going to remove from you then my drawing influence, and I'm going to let you do what you want to do. I'm not only going to let you do it, I'm going to confirm you in it because you've chosen your path and you're beyond the point of no return. And they perished in that. Romans chapter 1 says that God is doing the same thing right now. That he's extending mercy, that people are without excuse. And if they continue to reject God's mercy, he gives them over. What a horrific place to be in. God is seeking to draw us by his loving kindness. When we refuse, he then gives us over to the lusts of our flesh, lets us do what we want to do. That's a twofold punitive measure on the part of God. He removes his hand of wooing, and he lets you experience the full brunt of your sinful heart. That is the understanding of Joshua 11, verse 20, how desperately God wanted to give them mercy. They refused. All that was left was judgment. The first manifestation of God's judgment, the hardening of heart the removing of his hand of grace. The second, they were utterly destroyed. You might be here today, and you know you're a sinner. I mean, I don't have to define it for you. Don't give me that postmodern crap. I don't have to define sin for you. You know what it is because God has given you a conscience. It's a gift he's given to all humanity. You know you're wrong, and you know there's a God and he's merciful, and he wants to be a father to you. And he wants to give you a second chance in life. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to give you peace in the midst of trials. He wants to give you joy that surpasses comprehension. He wants to be the one that sticks closer than a brother. He wants to be your deliverer, your defender. He wants to be your king who rules well over your life. He wants your life to be full of mercy and blessings and fullness and health and goodness. But if you refuse, then comes death and judgment. Don't refuse the Lord. If you're here today and you've never fallen down and cried for mercy, you need to do that today. The Lord God loves you so much, Jesus demonstrated it. I don't mean that at one time you raised your hand or you've attended church for X amount of years. I mean, you need to call upon God for mercy. If you're born again, you know it. You're born again because you came and said, God, I'm a sinner, but I understand now that you're a savior. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid my price for my sins, that he took your judgment, your wrath in my place, that I might receive your grace and your mercy. Lord, I don't understand all of it, but I want it. I want to be forgiven. God, have mercy on me. I'm sorry. When you do that, the Bible declares that you're born again, meaning you are made spiritually alive. You enter into a relationship with God. 
And that you are given the gift of eternal life. That every sin you have ever committed is washed away, removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. And when you sin again in the days to come, God will continue to forgive you. And he will move and work in your life. He will begin to transform you from the inside out. Can I get a witness? That's who the Lord is, and that's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to give you mercy. He wants to love you. He wants you to experience his love. But if you refuse it, I'm telling you there's judgment. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible, in spite of all of what humanity has claimed, the Bible has proven itself to be the absolute word of God. It's too big of a risk. Don't be like the Canaanites. Grab the mercy of God. Rejoice in it. Let him be your king. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this word today. And Lord, just now, hundreds of us that already know you, we intercede on behalf of those who don't, who've never called out for mercy. Probably some of them in this place right now, Lord. And we just ask that you bring them to the point, the quietness of their own heart, whatever, of just saying, God, I need you. I understand that Jesus Christ, you're the Lord and the Savior of the world. And I'm a big old sinner. Forgive me. Save me. We pray that you cause men and women in this place to do that. And that when they do, Lord, you would just flood them with grace and mercy. That it would be tangible for them, Lord, that you'd wash away every sin. You bury it in the deepest sea, Lord, that you begin to heal their heart. Of all that was done to them and all that they've done, you just begin to heal them and set them free, Lord. That you'd set the captives free today. Jesus Christ, on the cross, you conquered sin and death and the devil that we might live and have life abundantly. Come and give people that abundant life today as they call upon you. And for your Christians, would you make us like Abraham and Moses? Would you make us ambassadors of your mercy, reconcilers, Lord? Would you teach us to call upon you to extend mercy to our community, or in our nation, to others? Your mercy is so good. You're so awesome. that mercy has an expiration date and the coming of the Lord is near. Lord, would you raise up evangelists, pastors, teachers, and prophets in our midst. The glorious message of your gospel, your forgiveness through your son would go forth to the nations and to our nation. Lord, that we be a community, a church, individuals characterized by repentance and humility before you. Forgive me, Lord, for I'm a wicked man. Thank you that you're merciful. If you need Jesus today, and you know you do, go talk to someone on the prayer team over on your left. They'll help you. If you're a Christian today and there's still some giants in the land that you need to slay, get some help. God has been answering incredible prayers in our church. People are getting healed. People are getting set free. People are getting saved. Let's do business with Jesus, man. I'm not here to play church. The Lord is here in our midst. Call upon him. He's a merciful God.